Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. I'm here every week with authors and experts to expand our appreciation and our understanding of the ways that animals are part of our world. To hear other episodes of this show and other informative pet talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. The Radio Pet Lady Network is partnered with my other enterprise, the Dog Film Festival, which celebrates the remarkable bond between dogs and their people. I'll be taking the festival across the United States, including Washington, D.C., Rochester, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Phoenix. I hope to see you in East Hampton, New York on August 2nd and at the second annual Dog Film Festival in New York City, October 15th. You can find more information at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a privately owned pet food company that uses people food to make food for cats and dogs in their family's human food facility. Pouches of their cats in the kitchen, their more economical BFF, best feline friend, and all varieties of canned Waruva for cats and little dogs are made with the same care and specifications used to make food for people. Waruva's owners want to feed your pets and their own dogs and rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, for whom the company is named, with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat. I have some really special women with me today. One is Rebecca Gwynn, who's the head of the Lifeline Animal Project in Atlanta, Georgia, that has done some incredible turnaround for the lost and homeless animals there, finding them new homes. Really a great success story. Cindy Copeland will be here with her charming, adorable, photographic, philosophical book, Really Important Stuff My Dog Has Taught Me. And then I have my new favorite author, Nick Smith, with Crossing the Plains with Bruno. You might have read about it in the New York Times. It is just absolutely heartwarming, rending, enlarging. Rebecca Gwynn, welcome to the show. I'm just so so happy for you and proud for everyone who loves you already for what you're you've been able to do in Atlanta for the many many homeless pets there. Well, thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you for having me. Of course, I I don't do it by myself. Right, right. That would be hard. That'd be really hard. In fact, there are some. I'm sure some of the shelters that you took over were maybe being run by one person who was overwhelmed. I don't know if that's the case, but I just want to remind people that when I spoke um, to Suzanne, who's the head of the Petco Foundation uh, very recently, she mentioned that one of her most proud relationships is with your Lifeline group because you took over some rundown county shelters where I don't know how high the what that's called in, in your world, the youth rates, the euthanization rates were apparently really, really high. And you've turned it around, and that's you and everyone working with you. And, and that's just an amazing thing to be able to do in your own lifetime, right? I'm sorry? I'm a lifetime? In your lifetime. I mean, how many people get oh, to do in something? My yeah, how oh. many? how many people get to do something in their own lifetime that goes from All something right. horrible to something wonderful? I mean, it just must be an incredible feeling. You know, really, that's one of the reasons that, that I got into it personally, because I felt like this was something that we really could achieve in our lifetime. And and with the support of the great people like um, Petco Foundation, uh, those dreams are really coming true. So we're, we're very, very grateful for their support. Paint a little picture for us of Atlanta. I think of Atlanta as the home of CNN, very sophisticated, uh, I don't know, upper 
middle class, well off, um, you know, educated kind of community. And yet, when you usually when you see very high numbers of animals in shelters being euthanized, that tends to suggest a lower income or lower uh, uh, accessibility to options. So, you know, you're right about that. That. Atlanta is a very sophisticated community. We are the home of CNN, a couple of other uh, huge organizations like Coca-Cola. Uh, oh, my goodness, but, that one. I've heard of it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and that was one of the reasons that, that I got into this. Uh, I started working with uh, uh, animal welfare when I became aware of the situation in 2001. And at that time... Uh, more animals were being euthanized in the Atlanta area than in all of Great Britain, all of New England, uh, any oh of the larger God. cities. Uh, oh and the two shelters that we now run at that time had over an 85% kill rate. Oh, my God. Um, so almost every animal that entered those shelters uh, died there. Wow. And I, I had an experience in, in one of the shelters we run now, the DeKalb County Shelter, uh, where I, I just realized the extent of the problem and how awful it was and decided something needed to be done. Uh, and and that's how we founded uh, Lifeline. Uh, fast forward to 2013, uh, Lifeline started and we incorporated in 2002 and just tried to look at the situation and provide solutions to the community that we thought were missing. So um, there was there was no high-volume spay-neuter resources. And so we opened our first high-volume spay-neuter clinic in 2005 and opened a second one in 2010. And uh, there were no uh, trap-neuter return resources for feral and stray cats. And so we implemented uh, a very robust uh, feral cat TNR program. We worked really hard and got to 2008, 2009. We were seeing the numbers drop, but when the economy really bottomed out, things started to go the wrong way in, in our shelters. Uh, and uh, in 2012, uh, we realized that if we really wanted to have uh, the impact that we needed to have and thought we could have in the Atlanta area, we needed to run those shelters. Uh, so we, we bid on management contracts for the Fulton County Animal Shelter, which encompasses most of the city of Atlanta, and uh, were awarded that contract in January of 2013. And then we also bid on a contract to run the DeKalb County Animal Shelter, which is the, the adjacent county and part of the city of Atlanta is, is also in DeKalb County, and were awarded that contract at about the same time. So we went from a fairly small organization uh, where we had spay-neuter clinics and our own no-kill shelter uh, to operating the two largest metro Atlanta county shelters uh, in Fulton and DeKalb. Wow. So you took on an enormous burden, an enormous challenge, because not only were they huge, but they clearly weren't being managed correctly, whether it was educating the public or managing how to get these dogs turned around and find them new homes. That must have been an incredible challenge. When you started out and saw this problem way back in 2001, what was your own personal background? I was a lawyer. I was a white-collar criminal defense attorney. Oh, my uh, God. I, I know. Wow. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. And I had, you know, I had a, a good job. I, I often say there aren't many happy lawyers. Uh, so I was as happy as I could be as a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> but I, I had an experience with a decab shelter. I, uh, I found a dog uh, caught in a fence behind my, in a neighborhood behind my house. And I called animal control and they came in and they picked the dog up and I met them there. And um, I asked what was going to happen. And they said, well, We'll put a citation on the owner's door, but if they don't show up in five days, then the dog will be put down. And I was mortified. I had no idea that that's what uh, that that's what was happening. Uh, so I became obsessed. I started visiting the shelter that they took the dog to. And on the fourth day, I said, "Well, just give me the dog. The you know the owners are coming back, so just give me the dog." And he said, "No, you have to wait five days." And uh, that when I walked into that shelter, I I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't even know the shelter existed for one thing. Uh, and there were easily about 400 dogs there at that time. I oh didn't even go to see the cat. And there were, you know, four, five, six dogs to a run. It was really overcrowded. And the staff seemed nice, um, but they kept saying, we got behind, we got behind. And I had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, and so I, I found the, the one dog that I had had hoped I was trying to save, and, and I asked them to let me have the dog. And I said, no, you have to wait five days. And I said, so I'll come back tomorrow. And he said, no, uh, you know, today's Friday. It has to be five business days. The next business day we're open is Tuesday. And I knew I wasn't going to win that battle. So I, I, you know, said, please hold the dog for me. I'll be back Tuesday to pick him up. And uh, what had happened is they had temporarily lost their DEA license to be able to euthanize animals. Thank God. So on Tuesday, well, uh, yeah, but they got it back. So on the Tuesday when I came to pick that dog up where I had seen 400 dogs, there were almost none. They had gotten caught up. And I realized what had happened, and, and my dog was still there. Oh, but thank God. almost all the other dogs in the shelter had been killed. Oh, my and that God. And that empty shelter um, really changed my life. I mean, I became obsessed and... Uh, uh, decided that I needed to do something about this. So we started Lifeline and started looking for why this was happening, why it was so bad in the Atlanta area, and uh, you know, went on a, a decade-long mission to uh, to really change things and ultimately realized that uh, if we were going to change the culture in their shelters, we were going to have to run them and, and took them on. So fast forward to 2013, at that point... The Fulton Shelter had about a 65% euthanasia rate. Which is still um, horrible. Had, is not good at all. I right. think it had gotten down to about 40%, but was climbing back up. And then the DeKalb County was hovering around 40 to 50% euthanasia. Still not good. And we were seeing other communities like Austin, Reno, Nevada, where they were achieving these 90% live release rates. Yes. And knew that, you know, the, the right people in place, we could really make a difference. Um, and, and I'm pleased to report that our, in 2015, our live release rate was was above 84%. So we'd gone from 85% killing to 84% live release. And at the end of, of 2015, in Fulton County, we're over a 90% live release rate. Wow. So less than 10% of the animals in our care. And I would just like to point to out, having been to, that's extraordinary. I mean, what an amazing thing to do, not just in your lifetime, but in a in a decade, because your lifetime has several decades in it. I mean, that's just an incredible 
use of belief and determination and looking across the, the, the fence, if you will, the grass was greener. Other places that were no less rich or more poor or more, un, you know, unresourced were doing, were doing something that was a goal. And you said, well, we're just going to find out how to do that and no more dogs are going to die unnecessarily between now and then. That's really an amazing achievement. I went on, on your website and I guess the dogs that are on there represent both of those two shelters, right? Correct. Because Correct. I, I want to say... we also have our own small shelter as well. Oh, yes. you do? You, the first one that you mm-hmm. started with. Because it looked to me like you had 533 dogs today when we were talking. And that's a really lot of dogs. And I started to scroll through the pages and it was almost all pit bulls. And to those of you out there that love pit bulls and those of you that work in shelters and those of you who adopt, you know that that is a bigger challenge to receive, uh, to get a release rate of 84% when you're dealing with a dog that's already a challenge in society for many of the wrong reasons. That's even a greater, it's not like you've got adorable little chihuahuas and I don't know, uh, you have a Jack Russell on there or a partial Jack Russell. But I was like, oh, yeah. It's probably, a Jack, it's probably a Jack Russell pit. Yeah, which are not the biggest <laughs> either. Let's be honest. I mean, I found out one of my right. granddaughters got a Jack Russell years ago, and I was like, why? No offense. Great dog if you have a hunt and the dog has something to do for about 20 hours a day. So you're doing this against the odds of having – a, a breed of dog that there are so many of and so many homeless and so many rental places that won't allow them and insurance companies that won't allow them. I mean, it's, it's really a, a huge achievement and success. How did the Petco foundation find you? Do you think? Well, you know, they they, we have worked with them, um, for some time and we use, uh, a couple of their stores for offsite adoptions. And we've tried to increase that, um, we also have uh, they have small little cat kiosks in some of their stores where we can put two or three adoptable cats in the nice. store, and we use those as well. So we've been partnering with Petco for for a long time, and uh, have worked with them for um, for some spay and neuter, and then also for adoptions. Um, but their uh, their new executive director, I guess she's not new anymore, but Suzanne Coker, right. I I knew and actually had tried to recruit to run our Fulton shelter um, before she took the pet care job. Oh, how So fun. we had, had had gotten to know each other a little bit. Um, but but really animal welfare is is a small world and there's there's a there's a handful of people trying to do this work and we we often uh console each other and try to support each other uh and, and see each other at different conferences and, and that kind of thing. So this is this is a movement and I think it's coming into its own and, and we we're fortunate to have a lot of support, especially from from the Petco Foundation. Well, I, I just think you know, it's if if anything could be tapped with a fairy wand, it would be to get that kind of a grant from from a foundation, but also to realize that of the thousands of shelters across the country, whether they're county shelters or smaller private rescues, to be singled out for a grant like that is in itself. I would think a great feather in your cap, not at, not bragging rights, but just to make you think we're really doing something right because we are getting the attention of someone who could put their fairy dust pretty much anywhere. I mean, almost every rescue and shelter has the great good fortune of taking advantage of Petco's open doors to rescues and shelters for adoption. 
So right. that and it, and they, doesn't get you a grant. That just gets you, you know, your lucky day, and maybe you get a few animals adopted every weekend. Well, I think that, you know, their philosophy, as my understanding it, is to really find organizations that are doing the good work and, and help them do that. Uh, a lot of animal welfare grants require that you put together a specific program um, that you um, adhere to a lot yes. of different uh, um, qualifications for the, the grant. And, of course, uh, Petco Foundation definitely wants to make sure that they're, they're funding viable organizations. Absolutely. But they have, they have more flexibility and, and give organizations credit for uh, the fact that, you know, we're doing the work and we know what we're doing. So we're, we're, we're blessed to be, uh, to be discovered by, by the Petco Foundation. Um, Atlanta is a, you know, it's a remarkable community. It's a very diverse community. Uh, you mentioned uh, our, our pit bull population. Uh, it's true that in our Fulton shelter, probably about 50 to 60% of our intake is, is uh, pit bull or pit bull mixed dogs. And uh, our decap shelter, it's even higher than that. So we're, we're, um, we're working with a, a fairly urban community, and that is the, the dog that, um, that tends to be at risk the most. So yes. um, we do have a, a lot of pit bulls and pit bull mixes, but they're, by and large, they're just dogs. I mean, yes, treat them absolutely. Like dogs and uh, um, uh, they can make wonderful pets. And just like not all dogs are great and not all pit bulls are great, but for the most part, they're just dogs. But it still makes your challenge greater because of the reasons of social attitudes, which are, you know, breedist, if you will, and, and really miss the point to some extent of what yeah. makes a safe or an unsafe dog. It doesn't change the fact that it makes your job that much harder. That One of the things that Suzanne Kogut had written to me when, when she introduced me to you, I said, I really want to bring on to the show some of these people you're helping because it, it's your success. It's your determination. It's your giving up of a pretty maybe not 100% happy, but probably a very lucrative job for doing something that's probably a living, a living wage kind of job, but so much satisfaction. I hope it inspires other people to realize that no matter how bad their shelter situation may seem or how bad the homeless situation, there is a solution. And it's within our grasp and reach. And it doesn't have to do with berating people for buying dogs or, you know, beating people up mentally for not adopting. It's just making those adoptable dogs more adoptable, more visible, more behavior, you know, modified, if you will. And for, of course, the spay and neuter, which will change everything. Once you become even more successful at that, you're going to have just a smaller population of dogs that people either abandon or can't care for, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's, we, we really do hope to put ourselves out of business one day. Yes. Um, but, and, and there'll be know, another for use for shelters. But I mean, it's definitely... The work of people like you, which has been going on for decades, is definitely moving this country towards a place where there are not so many unwanted dogs and cats. And when that time comes, there's lots of other things that can be done to shift the work that you're doing towards more spay and neuter, for example. I mean, there's that is a bottomless pit of need. There's only so many dollars and so many vans and so many mobile units that are available. I just, as we finish up, I just want to read you what 
what Suzanne Kogut had, had said in writing about you. She said, you're an organization driven by the heart and soul of all those involved who always stay focused on the priority of saving lives. All of us at the Petco Foundation are thankful that people like those at Lifeline exist and live each day to save lives, bringing our belief that love changes everything to life. So I want to add my thanks to you, Rebecca, for leading such a great example to the rest of us and having such a wonderful effect on all those animals whose lives you save, starting with that one little guy behind your house and all the thousands you've saved since then. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work. And as more wonderful things happen in your world, stay in touch so we can bring you back to, to talk about it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Rebecca. We'll be right back after this quick word with Cindy Copeland and really important stuff my dog has taught me. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado who has created innovative litters for the health of all members of the family with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground by allowing people to find the early signs of kidney disease in their kitty cats and intervene before damage is done, prolonging the quality and length of a cat's life. This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. However, all fish oil is not created equal. The Nordic Naturals difference is that their oil comes from Norway, where they use responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness. I am back with a woman who's written a book that just fills your face with a smile. Really important stuff my dog has taught me. Cynthia Copeland has written the most darling book with the greatest photographs. I have to find out who took these photographs. It's work been publishing, so nobody makes a better looking book than them. She's written 25 other books, but this to me has got to be her best. She lives with her people and her pets in New Hampshire, right across the border from me. And I just can't wait to say hi to Cindy Copeland. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Cindy, where did these amazing photos come that, that your great comments and ideas and philosophical nuggets come from? Uh, aren't the photos wonderful? Oh, I have to say, God. you know, it was really a collaborative effort. Workman is, is wonderful in that um, the books, sort of everybody who's involved in a book, from people in the art department to the people who are going to promote it to the sales department, to the editorial staff, everyone kind of combines uh, their talents. And sometimes people find photos on their own and say, wouldn't this be great? Sometimes a story inspires a photo or sometimes the photo comes first and then we track down the story, um, as was the case with uh, there's a photo of a little boy in a wheelchair with a wonderful yes. um, kind of hugging a dog. And we found the photo and we said, what a beautiful photo. And then we looked into that further and found out that the story behind it was even better than the photo, which was that um, his dad, he was, he was a little boy who was dying, and his dad wanted to get him a trained service dog and just was unable to kind of work through all the red tape to make that happen, and so went to the shelter, found a beautiful dog that was just about to be euthanized, adopted the dog, trained the dog himself, and he said before he'd even really 
done much in the way of training the dog, seemed to understand instinctively that it was his job to take care of this little dying boy. And he would alert the parents when the boy's oxygen level dropped. I mean, it's almost like, you know, they saved this dog's life and this dog was just committed to saving this little boy's life or as long as much as, you know, making his life as good as he could for the, for the remainder of it. So, you know, in that case, the photo, we started with the photo and found this great backstory, you know, so it was really a kind of a collaborative effort. And some of the photos are photos that people just took on their own. There's a great photo of Hawkeye, the dog who went up and laid down by his uh, the casket of this, the military, yes. uh, the man that he'd served with in the military after he'd been killed by the Taliban. And then some of them are professional photos and people who love to take photographs of dogs. You know, the one that says surprise people with that beautiful dog <laughs> with the crazy hair oh leaping through God. the air. So it's a kind of a com- com- combination, which I think really makes the book a lot stronger because you do have those pictures that people spontaneously took of their own dogs or, or a situation where they saw a dog in action combined with you know professional photos that are really beautiful. And and many of them I've never seen before and I sort of think I've seen an awful lot of dog photos. Right. <laughs> there, there's a there's a, a chapter called Contribute to the Pack and the the motto if you will that goes with the photo is work together and it's this pure white hunting hound kind of dog standing <laughs> on his hind legs and pu- using his paw to activate a water fountain for this right. darling little girl <laughs> now in this day and age one can be cynical and go oh yeah photoshop but that's a real picture right i mean we did look into that to make sure the photos are genuine so they're very they're all authentic so even if it seems kind of like an amazing photo it is a real photo and um i think which makes it a lot more fun when you're looking through the book because you know these really are photos that people just sort of either stopped and took of something amazing that was happening or that you know was a professional photographer captured of a of a great dog in action so and that, there's one of a of a temple and a monk going into the temple and that a, a is str- one of my favorites you too yes. i mean i i just I, it, it jumped out at me, and the dog is peacefully, with his head sort of down in a kind of monk-like way, to the extent that a dog can be like a monk, following the monk into this brightly colored temple, and and on the other page it says, come when you are called, and of course you're referring also to the monk being called to right. his exactly. mission. And so, did you... Did you find the photos first and then find really important stuff your dog has taught you to go with it or vice versa? You know, it was it actually worked, worked both ways. In some cases, um, I when I came up with the idea, come when you are called, I had a lot of ideas in mind about people who are responding to a calling. Yes. And so I was looking for kind of a, a photo that represented that. And when I saw that photo with the monk, I thought that is exactly what I'm looking for. I mean, we tried to sort of select because I had come up with a lot of different aphorisms and sayings. We tried to select the ones that worked really well on two levels. Um, you know, that obviously come when you're called, which is what dogs do, but then on the deeper level. And then we, tr- and that had a great photo to go along with them. So it was kind of that, that three pronged approach of like, you know, what does this aphorism say about sort of a dog's behavior? It had to be sort of authentic to what a dog would do. What is the deeper meaning that we can all, so that we can all take a lesson from that? And then is there a great photo to represent what we're saying? So it was kind of, it was more complicated than you'd think, you know, given the fact yes. that when you look at it, it's like, it looks like a wonderful little sort of coffee table book, but it did take quite a bit of time and uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of effort on a lot of the folks at Workman's part and, and my part just to come up with something that we really felt represented um, the whole concept of how often and, um, you know, dogs can teach us lessons and how 
how much we sort of think that we're teaching them you know, to sit and stay and come. And really, they are they have so much wisdom to sort of share with us if we sit back and think about that. Well, that's for sure. There's, there's Some of the photos are just delicious. There's one of a Weimaraner puppy. I'm partial to Weimaraner puppies myself having, <laughs> having them. And, and she's got this startled, sort of like mystified, intense look. And there's a knocked over garbage can behind her. Right. And it says, there are no bad dogs, just lessons to be learned. Now, where did you get that photo? You know, again, I, I think we just, I have looked through more dog photos in the last few years. <laughs> um, so it just, it's just a combination of people saying, oh my gosh, check out this whole array of photos from this fantastic photographer to people sending oh, in photos I of see. their own dogs. Right. Um, so in fact, one of the photos is from, I think, one of the editors at Workman said, I have this wonderful photo uh, of my husband with, with um, his dog, you know, with our dog, you know, can you, let's use this one. It was a great photo. Um, and oftentimes it was uh, websites about different things that dogs do, whether it was like um, therapy dogs or that kind of thing. And they had great photos that went along with their stories of therapy dogs. Uh, so it was a real combination of, of sources that we that we used for the photos. And some of them are archival. There's one of a little boy that looks sort of from the side like Spanky and our gang. Yes, and a dog yes. who isn't the spot dog, whose name I forget, from Spanky and our gang. But it's clearly an old photo. And this little kid is trying to hit a golf ball with a little kid-sized golf um, club. And this big dog, this big kind of mutt dog with a huge, cool collar, it says, know when to hang on and when to let go. Now right, that, right. That's ancient. That picture looks like it's from the 40s. Well, I like the idea of mixing in some vintage yes. photos as well because there are some really great. There's also one of this um, a, a black and white photo of um, some well, some women sitting uh, in sort of a row of with a great day. The huge dog is <laughs> trying to sit on her lap. You oh, know, don't want so anybody funny. tell you you're not a lap dog. Right. You know? And then, and then you also have quotes from people like Maya Angelou, and on that page where you see this. Um, they seem to be, the woman seems to be in riding clothes, and it's a gigantic fawn Great Dane with his bottom on her on her lap. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you you're not a lap dog. And then you have a quote underneath it from Steve Jobs. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. And exactly. that's, you know, something dogs do, of course, without someone suggesting it to them. One that really struck me was the Be a Hero Omar Eduardo Rivera, who was a, a blind computer technician, yes. on September 11th, what was interesting to me, and his beautiful guide dog would not leave him, even though he unclipped the dog, as yes. if to say to the dog, go save yourself. And the dog not only wouldn't save himself, but save the man. But there's another um, man with a guide dog who has been on this show, who wrote a book about it, who does motivational speaking, and who won the Hero Dog Award uh, a number of years ago. His dog led him down. Rosie, I think her name was, the 80 or 100 or however many flights it was. So there was obviously more than one person with a guide dog in, in the towers. Isn't that amazing? I mean, yes. I looked for stories that surprised me, you know, where dogs kind of went against their instinct. I mean, because there are, as you can imagine, wonderful stories out there about dogs alerting families when a house is on fire or when someone's breaking into the house and things like that. Yes. But I tried to choose stories where the dogs really had to kind of override instinct and do something yes. heroic and, and outstanding. And in the story you mentioned, which is one of my absolute favorites, um, where Salty, the guide dog, guided, I think his owner's name was Omar, down 70 flights of stairs, despite the fact that, you know, there's, there's panic and intense heat all around him. And it took them over an hour to get all the way down the stairs. And they, I think they got out just before the building collapsed. But 
I chose that for that very reason that you mentioned, which is it's, it's amazing that the owner unclipped the dog and ordered the dog to go, figuring he was going to die, and he wanted to save the dog, and the dog refused to leave his side. Now, to me, I mean, what does that say about just utter devotion, you know, of the dog to his, to his owner that against, you know, every, I'm sure, canine instinct <laughs> he had, he stayed with him and helped him down. I mean, I just thought that was an amazing, amazing story. And the fact that you say there are, are more stories like that, you know, in that same, on that same day is just amazing to me. Yeah. It was another, um, it was another yellow lab that guided, oh. that guided this gentleman um, to safety and other people, some other people followed them and the dog just oh. did the, did her thing. Kind of incredible. There's a picture of two Cavalier King Charles Spaniel puppies with a tennis ball and, and the, uh, the caption, if you will, they're pretty big and they're on the, the, the facing page. They're not underneath it is don't wait to be asked to play. Right. That's, exactly. That isn't a really important thing our dogs teach us. You know, anytime is a good time to play. Oh, exactly. And, and, and you see, you know, dogs in a dog park, I mean, they just run up to one another and kind of, you know, sort of like get a sense of whether any, you know, another dog is receptive to, to some sort of action. And then they just go with it. They don't hang back. They're not, you know, they're not kind of waiting to be invited to join. I mean, they just, that en- enthusiasm and exuberance and kind of the idea that I'm just going to assume that since I'm a dog and you're a dog and we're both out here to play, that we can do that and have a great time. It shouldn't be more complicated than that, you know? <laughs> I love right. that idea. Exactly. And and the, the Navy SEAL who, who died, his Labrador Hawkeye that lay down oh, inside yes. the casket, oh, my God, you know, what that brings to mind for me but that may have been his own personal dog, not his service dog, because Navy SEALs don't use dogs, come to think of it. But one of the things that always kind of shocks me is how the, the dogs, the canine handlers in wartime, the military ones, when their tour of duty is up, the human tour of duty, the dog is sent back and repaired with somebody else. And I just wonder about that unbelievable bond these, these yeah. service people and their dogs make. And whether they die or whether their t- tour of duty is up, the dog has to go back and form a new bond with somebody else. And I'm sure that there is some some wonderful nuggets of wisdom about that in the book. It's 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 really a, a cornucopia of wonderful photos and wonderful ideas and wonderful messages. You know, things things that in watching dogs we can learn. Nothing else matters right now but a belly rub. And this darling little Yorkie <laughs> on its back with all four feet in the air. And, you know, so, sometimes that's right. You just have to see. There's a lot of carpe diem in this book. Let's put it right, that way. Right, right. You know, I mean, for a dog, every day is the best day. I mean, they don't have any regrets. They're not worrying about um, what happened yesterday. They're not worrying right. about what might happen tomorrow. It's just about living in the moment. And it sounds simple, but when you, if you actually apply that to your, your own life, it really does make life much better. I mean, between that and then my other favorite lesson from dogs is, is just um, the, the sense of gratitude that dogs have. I mean, a trip to the dump is as exciting as a trip to the Grand yes. Canyon. You know, yes. They're not burdened by what could be, and so they're really able to enjoy what is. You know, I mean, how many of us have seen our dogs basking in that sliver of sunshine? There'll be one sliver of sunshine yes. that cuts through a room, and the dog will find that sliver of sunshine in, like, land, right, in the, <laughs> in the middle of it, because that's, you know, they're grateful for that. They're not looking for a room full of sunshine. A sliver is enough, and I think just being grateful for what you have and not thinking about what it should be or could be is a really important lesson. It sure is, and the book is full of so many nuggets of joy and wisdom like that. You did an incredible job, Cindy. It's a beautiful book, really important. My stuff my dog has taught me, and the cover 
is lesson number one, joy is meant to be shared. And there are two terriers on their hind legs that seem to be dancing into a spot of sunlight together, almost holding paws uh, in the forest. <laughs> it's a great photo. It's, it's just the book is completely delightful. And I'm sure you had nothing but fun doing it. It was a lot of fun to, to work on this book. I enjoyed every minute. It was wonderful. Well, I enjoyed every minute of enjoying it. I'm going to keep on enjoying it because it's one of those things, every time you open it, you get another little chuckle. So thank you oh. so much for doing the book and for being with us. And I hope everyone will find this as such a great gift to themselves or to other people they love. You take care. Thanks for being here. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure thing. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this quick break with Annick Smith and Crossing the Plains with Bruno. We'll be right back. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Halo, holistic, natural cat and dog foods, which are made from real ingredients you can recognize. Halo uses real meat in their kibble, no rendered byproducts, chicken meal, or chemicals. And their new grain-free recipes, like Vigor, give you even more healthy choices for your pet's dinner, while Daily Greens brings vitamins and digestive enzymes into your dog's diet. Halo is a private company partly owned by Ellen DeGeneres, where they emphasize giving back by making donations to shelters through freekibble.com for pets awaiting a forever home. I am back with Onyx Smith and this beautiful book, Crossing the Plains with Bruno. You may have read the superb review of it in the New York Times. That's how I learned about it. But it, it way surpassed anything I could have expected. I thought it was going to maybe be like Travels with Charlie, the John Steinbeck book. But it's something so much deeper and so much more profound and, and has to do with the author's very close relationship with Bruno, the chocolate lab who makes this trip with her, but also with dogs throughout her life and with many people throughout her life. And it's, a, it's just a prose poem, the whole book. Annick, welcome to the show. It's so delightful to meet you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very, very excited and pleased. Well, it's just how nice that people that love dogs and also love literature are going to get to learn about this book and about your life and, and how much dogs have meant in it in a very sort of a seamless, uh, woven-in way. I, I don't usually read introductions and prefaces to books. A, a wonderful, very brilliant man I once knew said, read the book. Then if you want to go back and read the preface or read the the foreword. But in this case, I read it and it really... It really, for me, set the, the tone for the book. It's an important preface because you start right out by saying, uh, the poet and novelist Jim Harrison has said he measures the passage of time by the dogs he has had. So do I. And I guess that, that many of us have had dogs throughout our lives and haven't really stopped to reflect the way you do in this book on time spent with the dog now, but on how it helps you reflect on all of your life. This trip was such a solitary and yet not totally solitary because Bruno was with you trip. And, and I wonder if, the, if that was something you had wanted to do all your life and finally gave yourself permission as you neared 80. Well, I, uh, I never had uh, taken a cross-country trip alone with a dog. I've taken cross-country trips alone. And, uh, and Bruno just seemed like the perfect companion, uh, for me on this long road trip uh, from Montana to Chicago and out to the Michigan dunes. And, uh, I love traveling with dogs, uh, and, uh, I love dogs that travel. And, and there's, and it really, as long as you get them used to 
being on board with you. It doesn't have to be from an early age. I mean, many of us have adopted dogs and they're happy to go along at any point. Bruno seemed very willing to stay as long in the car as you needed and to get out and fully engage himself in wherever you were when, when he got half a chance, right? That's right. Although sometimes we had some pretty long driving stretches across the plains and, and he got restless and I had to spend some time, you know, trying to find a place where we could actually pull off the road and, and uh, take, take a rest and he could do his things. His things like, you know, sniff and roll and swim and not just a pee and a poo, but something much more than that. I think one of the things that delighted me the most about the book is that you are a woman from the plains yourself and a great deal of your whole, it's a memoir of your whole history and the history of the early days of your marriage and, and living in log cabins and living this very rustic homesteady kind of life. I guess that was really a big part of the delight for me in this book. You, you lived a life that, is there anyone living that life anymore? It seems like an iconic, old-fashioned, American, frontier, pioneer kind of life. And you're still amongst us, and you live something that seems almost like ancient history. Well, I hope not. No, um, but in terms, I, of our, in terms of what people talk about and their experiences, I, I don't know anyone else who... There must be lots of people, but not many authors and not many people that one meets in business or travel have lived on the plains and have lived in that frontiers kind of way. Well, I guess not too many, but some do, you know, and uh, and I have friends who do. Um, it's, it's easier to do in Montana than it is to do in uh, the East Coast, but you're from Vermont, and I know people in Vermont who live up in the... Well, but I'm I'm what they call a flatlander. I'm a recent a recent convert, only eight years ago. So after many years <laughs> in Los Angeles, uh, having grown up on the East Coast, New England mostly, and, and in Europe, I I spent way too long living in in Los Angeles. And your your description of the short time you lived there when you wanted to give your your husband, who was very ill, the chance to try his hand at screenwriting, was so spot on and and just incredible and it was like you could not wait to get back to the plains but you tried <laughs> you gave it a try in hollywood the old hollywood oh my god you you, ha- you caught that you captured that moment in time so amazingly well thank you very much it, thank it you very much is a, a place not to be if you're from that if you're from nature and and the wild outdoors i before we talk more about some of the experiences that you had that you go into in the book. I'd love to invite you to read the first of two passages that I've picked out, which to me just exemplify your, the, your great extraordinary gifts as an author, but also as someone who, who notices and appreciates the world around you. And then there's Bruno, of course. And this one is, is throughout the chapters, there's um, in italics sort of, I guess you would call it little mini subheadings. I'm not sure that's the right word, but this one is called Ranch Road, Brown Ranch. So if you would read that for us, it would be delightful. Okay, I'll preface it with a a quick word to say that I I went on a road trip from uh, Montana, where I live, uh, to visit my mother in Chicago, where I grew up, and uh, then take her to a beach cabin in Michigan uh, that was the place we all loved. So this was very near the beginning of the trip on the Montana Plains. Ranch Road, Brown Ranch. I turn off the poetry, roll down my window, breathe ozone and pollen and wind. Here is the prairie, vibrant with morning. 
Bruno wants out even more than I do. He shifts about in his car pen. Somewhere past Sand Springs, I spot a dirt road into a ranch called Brown. There are no buildings or ranch hands in view and no signs warning that trespassers will be shot on sight. I drive up the track a few hundred yards and open the tailgate. Bruno jumps to the ground. He leaps and pirouettes and stands on his back legs, paws on my chest to give me a thank you lick. Who says dogs don't have emotions? We walk along a coulee. Meadowlarks on fence posts serenade each other and us. Their song is yellow and bright like their breast feathers. We scare up three white-tailed deer. They bounce high through the sagebrush, hooves up in perfect synchronicity, tails waving like flags. And I laugh because they are funny. Bruno gives them a look but does not take chase. He would chase a rabbit, go nuts over a sage grouse, run off a coyote, and challenge a bear. But deer are not of interest to him except as meat. Prickly pear cactus is spiny underfoot, and I rub my fingers through knee-high silver sage to gather its perfume. Bruno heads straight into the stream that cuts through the coulee. He swims snout up in circles, making grunts of delight. You're a pig, a big fat piggy, he smiles, his dog smile. I'm happy as a clam and butter, as Ray Carver used to say. I could amble through this prairie with Bruno for hours, but no. Mother enters my thoughts for the first time since I left Bear Creek. I wish I hadn't promised her I'd be in Chicago so soon. Maybe I'll call and tell her I'll be a couple of days late. I tried to push her image from my mind, a tiny old woman at the bay window of her 32nd floor apartment peering wistfully at the Chicago skyline and waiting for me. Another image. She is sitting on her rose-colored sofa in her off-white living room, dozing next to the telephone. She is waiting for a phone call from me, waiting for her eldest daughter to walk into her doorway. That daughter wants nothing more than to immerse herself in grass, sage, and sun, to feel no urgency, to think of no future. But duty calls. The forerunner glares white in the distance. I've got to quit daydreaming. We have only begun today's long ride. I turn to retrace my steps. Bruno lags behind, as reluctant as I am to leave the actual prairie and return to the abstract highway. I have to whistle him back. Before climbing into the driver's seat, I pick a pungent stalk of sage to hang over the rearview mirror. Its perfume lasts for days. I will take this prairie with me. It's just so lovely. And one of the things that I learned um, in reading about you was something that, that took me by surprise, was that you were one of the co-founders of the Sundance Film Festival. Is that correct? Not the Film Festival, the Sundance Film Institute. Institute, yes, of course. The Institute being the uh, the sort of um, the growing ground for what became the Film Festival. I, I, I did mean the Institute because the Institute, of course, runs the Film Festival. But it's an extraordinary place, and you are a filmmaker as well as a writer. And it's something that That's you've correct. done in a very, very unusual way. Talk a little bit about your filmmaking because it was pretty um, pioneering as well. You didn't just pioneer the land. You pioneered some, some filmmaking projects. Talk a little bit about that part of your, of your life. 
Well, I'm rather retired from filmmaking right now. My sons are doing it. But uh, I started uh, making documentaries. The doc- first documentary about a good friend of ours was a poet named uh, Richard Hugo, which I made with my husband. And then uh, developed a film called Heartland, which was uh, the true story of a Wyoming pioneer woman named Eleanor Stewart. And uh, we shot that film in Montana uh, with a crew from New York and Montana and Hollywood director Richard Pierce and and uh, a very good producer, Mike Hausman. And it was unusual because it was a revisionist tale of a woman uh, in the West, uh, one of the first of those uh, revisionist histories where where life was tough and, and a woman was not... Uh, Beautiful and delicate, in love with a cowboy. It was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and love with a cowboy is always a dangerous thing. Oh yes, loving cowboys is always dangerous, <laughs> but uh, tempting. <laughs> Any, anyway, so Heartland uh, was uh, a movie that had a great critical success. Uh, and, uh, of course, didn't make as much money. And it was very unusual because it was funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, which doesn't usually fund feature films. That's right. Um, and uh, and so it was kind of pioneering in that way, too. I think it maybe probably it was the first and last film that the NEH funded. <laughs> but, but anyway... But they, uh, their, but they didn't waste their money. I mean, that's for sure. No, no. Oh, no. It's still in, it's still being taught in women's studies and Western studies classes nice. around. Nice. around. And, uh, and so that was what got me into the Sundance Institute, because Robert Redford was just starting that uh, as a kind wanted to do a kind of workshop for independent filmmakers. And he chose some people who had made some indie films uh, to be on the original board. And, and so I was on the founding board of the Sundance Institute and uh, stayed on there for five years until I became involved in developing A River Runs Through It. Norman McLean's uh, story, Montana story. And uh, at that point, I was uh, using the Institute as, as a place to develop that film. And so I, I uh, retired from the board. And, that, and film, then eventually- that film was one of the great things that Redford's ever been associated with. I mean, it's an extraordinary movie and very much in the feeling, in a way, of crossing the plains with Bruno, even though it's not the plains, but it's water, because it's so focused on nature and being one right. with nature. Right. And, and it, it, you know, it's developed from what I think is a great book, Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It. And, uh, and so uh, we were friends with Norman and developed it with him. And then uh, Robert Redford basically bought it then took it over, and we got our co-producer credits. But it did get made, and that's the, the important thing. And it was made, I, I thought, really beautifully. I, I must say that in terms of name-brand people associated with your work, there's, there's a great quote on the back of Crossing the Plains with Bruno from Thomas McGuane, who I think is many of our you know, top ten famous favorite writers. And, and his comment about your book is, a great woman, a great dog, and a road trip in the American West. How can you miss? And I have to, I have to definitely agree with that. But it, it did really far exceed my expectations. There were very, there were many incredibly poignant and touching and meaningful places in the book right from the beginning when you talk about about losing Bruno so suddenly, 
and about losing your husband so suddenly and, and the way you described that look of surprise on his face at the sink as he turned and he just died right in front of you and your two little twins. I mean, as a young, uh, quite a young man at the time. And yet, you- yeah, he was, he was only 41 and I was 38. So that was pretty shock. shocking, pretty shocking, especially because you lived on the land and sort of off the land, which makes it that much more challenging. It's not like, you know, you're living a place where there's a co-op next door and a child care center. There's, there's a, <laughs> another wonderful, um, but you had a lot of great loving friends and that, that certainly helps. Uh, I'd love right. to read Bruno's heaven, which is, um, just uh, wonderful about you've now now you're you've come to find your your mom and and you're in Chicago and it's quite a different setting and he was terrified of the underground garage and the elevator but but now he's uh he's he's in heaven here so let's let, tell us a little about this okay well i i grew up in chicago and and i came back to visit my mother and at the time this book was written i was uh, not quite 70 and she was 97. And so uh, I was taking her uh, to our summer cottage in the Michigan Dunes from uh, a retirement home in Chicago, a high rise. And that was what she loved best to do. And it was a great visit. So this is when we first arrived at our cottage in the Michigan Dunes. It's called Bruno's Heaven. I lugged two armloads of groceries from the car and up the long stairway to the top of the dune where our cottage sits. Free at last, Bruno stops to consider the landscape. I wonder if he will balk because of his stairway phobia and run through the woods, coating his feet, belly, and sides with the poisonous oils of poison ivy. But he is not phobic about stairs without splash. Good boy, I say, holding onto Mother's arm when Bruni charges fast, past. Bruno stands at the top landing, king of the mountain. He curls his lip into a lopsided smirk. Nose to the ground, he circles the house. Scents of squirrels, raccoons, mice, and other small critters have transported him into dog ecstasy. His tail wags nonstop. When I unlock the door to the kitchen, he dashes in. I chase after him, afraid he will crash into one of my father's sculptures or run over my tiny mother. But when I get to her, she is patting Bruno's big head. I love this dog, says Mom, repeating her Bruno mantra. He makes a couple of grunting noises and settles at her feet, actually on her foot. No doubt about it, this dog knows our trip ends here. After stowing our grocery, I take Bruno for his first beach walk. He plows down the peeling green-painted stairs, crosses a little bridge across a gully, stops on the sandy path, looks back at me for permission. Go ahead, I tell him, stepping out of my flip-flops. You can go. We are both running in the fine, cool sand through clumps of knife-sharp marum grass and between flowering chokecherry brush till we reach the mini-dune that leads to the beach. This year, our strip of waterfront sand is wide and flat. Some years it is narrow, some years sloping. The dunes move and the beach moves. Wind makes a difference, rainfall and snow, and the rising and falling of lake levels. Bruni races in circles, jumps up at me and licks my face. He hops around in his brown dog dance. This is joy. This is gratitude. The lake is choppy and wavelets are cold on my toes. Bruno wades in until his feet lose touch with the bottom. 
He paddles a dozen yards, huffing as he does when swimming, then circles back. He shakes water off his back, finds a stick of driftwood, and drops it at my feet. I throw the stick, and he plunges after it. I walk down the beach, and he follows, head up, stick in jaws, tail and rear end wagging. I toss the stick again and again, and he retrieves it until he gets as bored as I am. I look up toward the house, knowing my mother is sitting in her favorite wicker rocker on the screen porch, and then I hear the bell. How many times have I been called by that cowbell to leave some beachly pleasure and attend to hanging laundry or packing groceries up the stairs, helping with dinner or getting ready for bed? We kids used to hide from our grandmother, Serena, a woman rarely, if ever, serene, who tugged at the bell rope, madly summing up, summoning us to lunch. If my mother was the bell ringer, we'd ignore her until she came stalking down the stairs to collar us. I smile to myself. This is the way my boys have treated me. I whistle for Bruno. He is no model of obedience, but better at the practice than me or my kin. The sun is low. The bell rings. The wheel turns. Oh, Anik, this book is just so wonderful. In the simplest descriptions, you wrap up everything. You wrap up everything that's part of human experience and existence. And, and this dog was obviously a conduit to you finding those memories and, and reconnecting with so many images and so many people and places and, and even other dogs that had gone before. It, it's a, an extraordinary work and and. I'm, I'm sure not the last that you'll write, but, but what a wonderful tribute to a life well-lived and to a dog, one in a, in a long line of well-loved and happily living dogs. I, I, I really salute you for just a, a, an extraordinary accomplishment and for giving such a wonderful look, an unadorned look into your life and, and all the places you've lived and all the, the things you've seen and the people you've known. It's, it's a beautiful book, and he must have been a very, very fine boy, that Bruno. Oh, Bruno was was a real character. You know, he was a ninety something pound, uncut chocolate lab, and and he was he was decidedly a funny and interesting dog. I loved him very much. Comes- now I've got a I've got a black lab now who was his friend. You know, when he, before he died, Lulu, and she's uh, twelve and a half, and she we just did a road trip with her from Montana to Santa Barbara. Well, and she's sleeping right here at my feet. I am looking to read. I'm looking forward to reading that book as well. So hurry up and write it, please. <laughs> Crossing that that those plains with Lulu. Thank you so much, Annick Smith, for this beautiful book, Crossing the Plains with Bruno. Take care and thank you for so much for being with us and reading to us. Thank you, Tracy. I surely appreciate it. Take care. Thank you all for listening. Enjoy these books when you have a chance to grab them for yourselves. And in the meantime, take a trip with your own dog. Even take a trip with your own cat, if if you dare. And we'll talk again next week. 